Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, our weekly roundtable, we discuss the domestic and global impacts of the war in the Ukraine, the varying views of in the global south and global north on the war, global realignments, impacts on energy and the environment, the horrors of war on both sides, increases in military spending in the U.S. and Europe. We also discuss the Senate hearings of President Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, Ketanji Jackson Brown, who was roundly attacked by Republicans. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham has now announced he will not vote for her, and Republican Senator Susan Collins will vote for Ketanji Jackson Brown. What did the hearings expose about the growing divide in the United States as well as the threat to the truth? Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. Russia says Ukraine carried out an airstrike on a fuel storage facility across the border in Russia. The governor of Russia's Belgorod region said the alleged airstrike by a pair of helicopter gunships caused multiple fires and injured two people. If confirmed, it would be the first such attack by Ukraine since Russia's invasion began in late February. Russia said the strike could harm peace talks that resume today by video link. Meantime, the International Committee for the Red Cross said complex logistics were still being worked out for the operation to get emergency aid into the beleaguered southern port city of Mariupol and to get civilians out of the city. NATO said there are growing indications Russia is using its talk of de-escalation in Ukraine as a cover to regroup, resupply, and redeploy its forces for a stepped-up offensive in the east. Rosie Burchard reports from NATO headquarters in Brussels, where Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg unveiled NATO's annual report. Despite Moscow suggesting it would scale down attacks in parts of Ukraine earlier this week, Stoltenberg says intelligence suggests Russia is not pulling troops back from Ukraine, but rather repositioning them and trying to reinforce its offensive in the Donbass region. The NATO number one says that means more attacks and more suffering can be expected. The remarks were made as NATO unveiled its annual report. Stoltenberg said the war in Ukraine has created a greater sense of urgency among NATO allies when it comes to boosting defence spending. Only eight of the 30 NATO members met the alliance's target of spending 2% of GDP on defence in 2021. Rosie Burchard, Brussels. Ukraine state power company said Russian troops pulled out of the heavily contaminated Chernobyl nuclear site in northern Ukraine. They turned management of the site back over to Ukraine. Ukrainian officials said the departure came after Russian soldiers reportedly received significant doses of radiation from digging trenches in the exclusion zone around the closed plant. President Biden has ordered the release of one million barrels of oil per day from the nation's strategic petroleum reserve for six months in a bid to control energy prices. 
Biden also called on Congress to impose financial penalties on oil and gas companies that lease public lands but are not producing. That runs counter to the call from environmental justice groups to keep fossil fuels in the ground to avoid adding to the emissions that are fueling the climate crisis. Amazon workers hoping to form the first union at a warehouse on U.S. soil are cautiously optimistic after early results show them ahead. The early tally last night showed that in Staten Island, 1,518 warehouse workers so far voted yes to forming a union, 1,154 voted no. Ballots will continue to be counted today. Meantime, Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, appear to have rejected a union bid, but outstanding challenged ballots could change that outcome. Pope Francis has made a historic apology to indigenous peoples for what he termed the deplorable abuses they suffered in Canada's residential schools. I also feel shame. I have told you, and I will tell you again. I feel shame, shame and sorrow for the role that several Catholics, particularly those with educational responsibilities, have played in all that has hurt you, in the abuses and disrespects towards your identity, your culture, and even your spiritual values. The Pope said he hoped to visit Canada in July. He disclosed his plans during a meeting with members of First Nations communities. They came to Rome seeking a papal apology and a commitment for the Catholic Church to repair the damage. A National Truth and Reconciliation Commission has concluded at least 4,100 students died while attending the schools, many from mistreatment or neglect. Washington Governor Jay Inslee has signed into law a bill creating a first-in-the-nation statewide alert system for missing indigenous people. The law sets up a system similar to Amber Alerts for missing children. It was spearheaded by Democrat Deborah Lekanoff, the only Native American lawmaker currently serving in the Washington state legislature. Missing and murdered indigenous women's and peoples is not just an Indian issue. It's not just an Indian responsibility. Our sisters, our aunties, our grandmothers are going missing every day for thousands of years. It's been going on way too long. Jared Kushner has become the first member of the Trump family and the highest ranking advisor to former President Trump to testify to the House committee investigating the Capitol insurrection. House Select Committee member Elaine Luria told MSNBC Kushner's voluntary appearance was valuable. We were able to um, ask for his impression um, about these third party uh, accounts of the events that happened that day and around that day. So um, he was able to voluntarily provide information to us to um, verify, substantiate, provide his own uh, you know, take on, on this different reporting. So it was really valuable for us to have the opportunity to speak to him. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are now entering the sixth week since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the worldwide impacts as well as the humanitarian crisis deepens as the world witnesses the horrors of war. The crisis ranges from increasing hunger and loss of life of civilians in the Ukraine, the growing refugee crisis, shortages and spikes in the cost of both food and fuel, the possibility of a worldwide recession, and what could be a reordering of the dominant world order, all occurring amid the climate crisis and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. 
On Friday, Russia said the Ukraine carried out an airstrike against a fuel depot in the Russian city of Belgorod, according to Reuters. The head of the World Food Program warns Russia's invasion of Ukraine could trigger the largest global food crisis in 80 years. David Beasley told the UN Security Council this week that half of the grain his agency purchases annually comes from the Ukraine. He said the war has endangered efforts to feed 125 million people around the world. And shortage in fertilizer has already led Brazil's President Bolsonaro to push to ignore treaties with indigenous nations and begin mining phosphate and other fertilizer ingredients in sensitive parts of the Amazon. And on the energy front, the United States is planning the largest ever release from its emergency oil stash, over a million barrels of oil per day over six months. Republicans are exploiting the crisis and the surge in gas prices to promote the ramping up of domestic oil production. The Many people, including some in the Biden administration, are making a big push for nuclear power once again to be a key part of the U.S. sustainable energy future. This could lead to the first expansion of reactor construction in more than three decades. Let us go now to a clip from NBC, including about the energy and, and gas prices. Let me start again with the oil sure. reserve news and why now? Well, as I was saying, this has not happened in a vacuum, of course, with the White House facing some real political headwinds right now. Americans broadly dissatisfied with President Biden's handling of his job, those midterms to take place this November. They realize the number one issue for Americans right now is that cost of living expense and the inflation, the price that Americans are paying for all things, most notably gas. The president acknowledging the gas across the country is more than $4.20 right now. And the hope, as the president indicated here, and I thought his words were striking, is that this would be in a form, a wartime bridge until the end of the year when domestic production ramps up again. A total of 180 million barrels of oil to be released, 1 million barrels per day for the next six months. But remember, this isn't the first time that the president has done something similar to this. Back in November, the White, the White House announced the release of 50 million barrels <coughs> earlier this month. It was 30 million barrels as well. And it's only had temporary relief, only had a limited impact on the price of oil and gas in this country, all of it a function of the White House acknowledging or announcing that it would be banning Russian oil and gas imports to the U.S. All righty, there you go. And meanwhile, the German government took the first formal steps toward rationing its natural gas supplies this week as it attempts to wean itself off a decades-long reliance on Russian energy. And in Spain and Greece, supermarkets are rationing food, including flour, milk, and sunflower oil. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov visited New Delhi to persuade India to hold on to its neutral line on the Ukraine war and to bypass international sanctions to buy more of its crude oil through a rupee-ruble uh, payment mechanism.
His visit comes shortly after the visit by British Foreign Secretary Liz Truss. Truss said Britain respects India's decision to buy Russian supplies, but she also discussed ways to cut India's strategic dependence on Russia. And the EU is planning on warning China on Friday not to offer military or economic aid to Russia. The U.S. is also pressing for Russia to be dropped from the upcoming G20 meetings, a move that is opposed by China. Peace negotiations between Moscow and Kiev will resume today. A Ukrainian negotiator said that talks would continue by video, focusing on the peace framework of the Ukrainian side presented this week that Moscow described as constructive. Ukrainian officials said their country is ready to declare itself permanently neutral, forsaking the prospect of joining NATO. This was a key Russian demand. While Russia said it would drastically scale back its military activity around Kyiv, the proposals intended to come into force only in the event of a complete ceasefire include a 15-year consultation period on the status of the Crimean Peninsula um, that was annexed uh, by Russia in 2014. And on the amount of money being poured into all of this, President Joe Biden proposed fiscal year 2023 Pentagon budget that includes $813 billion in spending for national defense, a 4% increase of $31 billion from the spending package signed into law earlier this month. In the fiscal year 2022 spending bill approved last month, Congress passed a bill um, that is 13.6 billion supplemental funding, new funding in new military aid for the Ukraine that includes over 20 million rounds of ammunition, 100 drones, 2,000 Javelin anti-tank missiles, and 800 Stinger and anti-craft systems, anti-aircraft systems. If you add the U.S. defense budget, including uh, figures from Biden's budget released this past Monday, a huge uh, amount of money and also in Europe, you see increases and calls for increases in defense or military spending. Uh, we're going to be hear, hearing from our panelists now on all of this. I'd like to welcome them. Laura Carlson, director of the Americas Program, works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several special Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's good to be here. And Jackie Goldberg, a governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She's a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's nice to be back. 
Yes, it is indeed to have you back, Jackie. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books, including The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing, and the award-winning book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the long 16th century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so Laura, we're actually going to uh, start with you. Um, our first rounds here, there's so much to discuss on the Ukraine. We'll likely do a couple of rounds uh, on it. But as we're looking at the varying views of the war from the global south and the global north. I thought you might want to weigh in on that. Yeah, definitely. It's been interesting to see the, the differences in, in the press from the United States and from uh, allied countries. There's essentially a position put forth that you either support the Russian invasion, which the global southern the countries of the global south pretty unanimously do not, or you unconditionally support the United States and NATO. And there's a strong feeling that I think is totally correct in other countries that the geopolitical crisis cannot be reduced to such a simplistic dichotomy, and that Putin and Biden are engaged in a macho showdown that's putting the entire world at risk, including the risk of, of nuclear war. What's happening lately has... Uh, has not been encouraging. I think the fact that NATO is coming out already undermining negotiation attempts by saying that they have reason to believe it's a cover for offensive actions in the East is not a helpful statement to make at this point as the video negotiations are due to begin this uh, today uh, in a renewed effort that has the possibly positive step of including this Ukrainian proposal that you announced and that Russia has already said that it will consider seriously and respond to in the coming days. And then you see what's happening on the ground, and it's just, it's very, it's difficult to follow. The media coverage is not entirely reliable. There are contradictions. It's clear that Russia is pulling back in the north. It's reducing its pressure on Kharkin and Kiev. And it's partly due to failure to capture major cities and partly due to negotiations and strategies. We don't really know all of what's going on behind there. Um, it's a good thing left Chernobyl because they were getting contaminated, and that's a relief and probably a positive sign. Um, but there's clearly no, there's no clear dominance on the battlefield, and it's very clear that this will not move the negotiations. And it's clear, as we've said so many times before, that there is no military solution for this. So in terms of, of where that leaves us, you know, Biden is, is saying that the United States is in for the long haul and requested that record $813 billion defense budget, partly on the basis of Ukraine. But for those who are actually doing the fighting and dying and directly threatened in this situation, there seems to be quite, a, a quite uh, less enthusiasm than the hawkish U.S. president has for a prolonged war. 
uh, we're seeing divisions in the Ukrainian army that could be more significant than they're being dis- portrayed. Zelensky just fired two generals as traitors. Don't really know what that means, but um, it's kind of a major move. Uh, and then, and then there's considerable strain on Moscow as the sanctions increase and the war effort becomes more costly. So the question is, how much appetite is there really for a long time war, long-term war there? And we look at the human costs, uh, and and it's inconscionable to even think about a prolonged war as a solution to what's going on there. In the global south, there's huge concern about the hunger, the inflation. We're already seeing the hunger. The food crisis is uh, on the horizon. The inflation is already affecting people. The geopolitical divisions are affecting people. Are affecting people, and then the risk of an acceleration of climate change, which again has a major impact on the global global south, as there begins to be increased production in areas that have been pulled back, and less talk about a transition and more talk about how do we maintain the current completely disastrous model. Of, of the use of oil and gas. People were almost unanimously shocked when Joe Biden put regime change in Russia on the table in his Poland speech on March 26 by saying that Putin must not remain in power. Um, that really was a scary moment for many people. And then, of course, he was forced to walk it back after receiving criticisms from all over the world and Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, had to clarify that that was not, in fact, the U.S. position. But there it was. Russia is isolated in terms of condemnation of the invasion, but when you look at sanctions or a complete diplomatic freeze-out, not so much. Other countries are refusing to apply sanctions, saying they hurt the population and constitute undue intervention in a foreign conflict, and I think both of those positions are very valid. Um, there have been meetings between Russia or friendly exchanges with major countries, including China, India, that you mentioned, Brazil, um, Argentina, the Mexican Congress rather inexplicably just this, le- this week launched a Mexico-Russia friendship initiative in the middle of the eva- invasion. And then especially significantly, OPEC is refusing to increase production. So we're seeing a much more complex situation than um, you're either with me or not with me. And we're also seeing uh, a situation in which uh, there there doesn't seem to be a concerted voice for um, saying there's no military solution, although there's not automatic alignment with Russia or the United States. Yeah, thank you, Laura. And and Jackie Goldberg, I mean, if there is a silver lining to any of this, one can't imagine there is any. But we have to note that there is less talk now about World War III than a few weeks ago. You know, people were very worried that this uh, could lead to all of this. Uh, Laura talked about the difficulty in trying to figure out what the heck is going on, because there's... <clears throat> propaganda on both sides. Of course, there's the propaganda the Russians are putting out. There's the propaganda from uh, the U.S. I mean, you look at uh, U.S. uh, news reports and it's, you know, even President Biden was making some comments about 
a split between Putin and Russian generals uh, and on Thursday. And then he had to say, well, you know, that's not really been verified. So, uh, you know, who knows if the truth is getting lost in, in all of this. But also, Jackie, I'm wondering, too, you might want to comment on all of this, but uh, specifically also on the domestic uh, front, because uh, Biden is proposing releasing 180 million barrels of oil. Midterms are coming up. People worried about uh, gas uh, prices. And meanwhile, the jobs report that came out on Friday continues to show a strong economy. I mean, the unemployment rate, uh, the lowest it has been in decades. But nevertheless, Biden isn't getting a bump from any of this. People uh, are consistently saying, oh, the economy is in shambles. But meanwhile, <laughs> the the figures, at least for some sectors of the population, aren't bearing that out. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on this? Well, and I'm going to add another feature. I'm going to also add the Israeli issue to this. <clears throat> because yes. Israel's in a very difficult situation from its point of view, uh, and that's why it has not joined sanctions imposed by the United States and England and the European Union because it has a relationship with many uh, Russian um, oligarchs who are Jewish, like Roman Abramovich and Mikhail, uh, I think his name is Freeman, and, and there's a bunch of them, many of whom have now started to ge- become Israeli citizens, and, this has, and, and they are also worried about upsetting Russia, which gives them the freedom to strike into... Uh, Syria uh, and other places that might give weapons to uh, attack Israel, so they don't want to upset Russia, uh, and they're having a difficult time. I think one of the things that's really happening, though, is is that many Israelis had no real idea about the um, uh, involvement of these vastly uh, wealthy Jewish. Um, um, uh, what do they call them? Oligarchs, Oligarchs. and they and and in Israel, they are funding all kinds of things. They are becoming there, and also there's another issue for Israel. There are a quarter of a million Jews in Ukraine, which are legally by Israeli government policy and and constitution uh, legally able to emigrate uh, to uh, Israel. They are at the moment providing some rescue operations. Uh, of uh, Jewish uh, 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 Ukrainians, but you know they 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 are very in a very tight spot. They have uh, I think Bennett, uh, the uh, uh, prime minister, was one of the first to to actually talk uh, with uh, with uh, Putin in person, and would like to be some way maybe a messenger in terms of negotiations. But remember that about a million Jews from Russia and other of the former Soviet republics moved to Israel. So there is a tremendous involvement with both Ukraine and Russian Jew, Ukrainian and Russian Jews in Israel, which is making things, I think, extremely interesting, um, because uh, Israel has to deal with what the oligarchs are going to do. They are, they've taken residency, they've taken uh, citizenship, and, and, there were, and there's a lot of worry in Israel that uh, oligarchs are going to have a major impact on Israel because of this war. In terms of some of the other questions you asked, I think the, the, the real problem is in part how the news media does things. 
Um, and, I, and I mean this quite sincerely. I, I don't mean to be saying that this is the fault of the news. But the news uh, have, if you watch national news, and I, we try to watch three or four different stations of national news uh, to keep track of this, what you're seeing is a repeat over and over and over again about the prices rising, a repeat over and over and over again about how this is hurting everybody, a repeat over and over and over again that this is a problem. When the news focuses on an issue, it becomes what people believe is true. And so what they believe is is that even though many people in this uh, country right now are better off than they've been in a very long time uh, due, to, uh, due to the pandemic, others are not. And the reality is absolutely true. If you're poor in America, you didn't get anything, and you're still not getting anything. You got something for a while, but the Republicans cut it off. And that was the Republican strategy. Cut off the support for human beings that are living on the edge of disaster in the United States, and then run stories over and over again about how everybody's hurting and how nobody can pay their bills and so forth. And then you can say, well, that's all the fault of uh, a Biden. But in fact, it was, in fact, the, the Republicans who cut off that aid to the low income of this country. They don't, of course, remind anybody of that when they do these attacks. And the newspapers pick that up, and so do the, the national television news. So I think part of the problem for Biden is, is that they don't run many articles on how great a lot of people are doing. They don't run any articles on how wonderful the, uh, the economy is. They don't run many articles on the number of people who have left poverty because of some of the bills that uh, the first, uh, first major change that they made. They don't run any information. There are no stories on the successes of the Biden administration. And if you there are no successes in the Biden administration, they're only, you're only paying more at the pump. Well, it's his fault. And, and I think uh, the fact of the matter is, is that inflation is in part due to the fact that people have more money to spend. And the fact of the matter is we don't talk about the role of the actual people making decisions. Why is there a shortage of goods? There's a shortage of goods because corporate America has decided it should not ever send a, spend a single cent in keeping things in stock so that if there's a, a crisis of any type, you have a way of dealing with the crisis. Their view of the world is, is that we keep everything just, we buy just for the moment, just for the moment our supplies to make our products, just for the moment to have what we have on hand to send out to retail stores. And the result of their political, social, economic decision to put all their money into their high-paid executives to put all of their money into increasing their profits. The oil company profits in the United States are higher than they have been in many, 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 many years. Why are the oil companies unwilling to participate in supporting America? Because they have people who are stockholders who want them to get more and more dividends and more and more payouts. And the result of the capitalist approach to corporate structures is why there are shortages. It is not because of anything else. And those shortages have come because these people do not believe it is their responsibility to supply America with goods. Their responsibility is only to make profits and only to divide those profits amongst their high-paid corporate 
leaders and amongst the people who are, have stock in their company so that they can keep getting higher and higher pay because they're delivering higher and higher dividends. Well, as long as that continues, it really doesn't matter whether there's a pandemic or not. There are always going to be shortages, and every time there are shortages, they raise prices. And, oh, what happens when they raise prices? Oh, my God, they make more profits. What a, what a system. This is a terrific system. So I think what we have to really look at is why is the public uh, media not covering the report this kind of news. Why are they not holding accountable the corporate decision makers who decide not to have anything on hand, not to keep particularly things that were in short supply, perhaps in terms of particular chips or, incre- or other things? Why didn't they have a a a a, a, a standing uh, resource of them held in reserve so that they would need? be able to produce no matter what was going on because it would reduce their profits. It would reduce their ability to get higher and higher stock uh, outlets for their, for their or executives. So I think we have to take a look at why Biden's having such a hard time with this. Now, what will the, the uh, barrels of oil do? It will help a little. It won't help much. Um, I think the big problem is is that Biden is now going to be convinced that there should be more oil exploration and pumping in the United States. He said so a couple of times. Oh, there, what happened to climate change? Oh, my God, it's gone. So there's lots of consequences is what I'm trying to say. Right. And and well said. And, and Jackie Goldberg, I mean, you know, if you look at the defense spending, the military spending, I saw a stat that said that um, it would that's four times what the child tax credit would have cost. And, yep. you know, you're right. People are like inflation. You know, we can't possibly have the child tax credit. The families need this money. I mean, a program that was successful by reducing child poverty by close to 50%. But who cares about that, right? <laughs> so, That's exactly right. Uh, the point is, is that, oh, now we have to spend this money on the wars. We have to spend this money on military equipment. And, oh, by the way, you who live here, well, I'm sorry, we just don't have enough money for you. Right. And and Dr. Gerald Horn, I mean, looking at the oh, so many uh, global geopolitical repercussions and realignment uh, happening there, and just reminding our, our listeners when they, you know, we hear again and again, um, about Russia's complicity for starting this war. It can't be denied, but we don't hear a hell of a lot about the role the U.S. played. April t- 2008, the NATO Bucharest summit, right? What what happened there? Um, about, you know, the U.S. pushing for the Ukraine to become uh, members of, of NATO. Also in February 2014, the really the coup, which was backed by the U.S. that overthrew Viktor Yukanovich, who was democratically elected, or so we're told, in 2017, when the Trump administration decided to sell to Kiev defensive weapons. And fast forward then to July 2021, the Ukraine and the United States co-hosted a major naval exercise in the Black Sea region involving navies from 32 countries. Uh, Russia wasn't too happy about that. And then the U.S.-Ukraine 
Ukraine Charter on Strategic Partnership also signed November in 2021, and uh, which Putin also found intolerable. So a lot in the lead up to all of this, but Dr. Horn, your views on give us the, the, the global geopolitical um, analysis and uh, view on all of this. Well, as you already said, I think the ultimate impact and meaning of this conflict in Eastern Europe may be gleaned today, April 1st, 2022, because this is the day where you have the virtual summit between the People's Republic of China leadership and the European Union leadership. And the question on the table, if not stated explicitly, is will the European Union go along with this idea that has been floated in Washington about imposing secondary sanctions on China to the extent that it does not break with Russia with regard to this conflict. If that does take place, then it may expose the reality that the Ukraine crisis, in many ways, is a way to weaken China by weakening its number one partner, speaking of Russia. Uh, As you suggested, it does not appear that China will break with Russia. It may feel that the winds of change are blowing in its direction, as suggested by the friendly meeting between the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov and Wang Yi, the Chinese counterpart in Beijing. As you suggested, uh, Mr. Lavrov is now in New Delhi, where there's discussion of rupee-ruble trade, that is to say bypassing the U.S. dollar, while in Beijing, uh, Mr. Lavrov also met with his Iranian counterpart. And the question on the table right now is, will the ultimate meaning of this war be a de-dollarization of the global economy, the birth of a new international economic order, which, by the way, uh, many African nations like Tanzania have been pushing for since the 1970s, And even the Financial Times of London has pointed out that as we speak, already there is monetary multipolarity. That is to say, the role of the dollar in settling trade transactions globally has declined in the recent decade. And not only have you seen the rise of the euro and the Chinese renminbi, but increasingly you see the rise of the Canadian currency and the Australian currency. And... The question is, will this war accelerate that ongoing process, forcing the United States to find an alternative to the printing press to deal with its economic issues? That is to say, just printing more dollars, which historically, at least for the last few decades, is at the equivalence of gold. If there is de-dollarization, that obviously will have severe impact on the U.S. economy, uh, leading to price and tax rises. Uh, perhaps leading to program cuts from everything from the post office to education and health care. And what I find striking about this is that there is a very strong, if not dominant, tendency on the U.S. left to analyze this conflict with a kind of tunnel vision, looking at the conflict by way of Washington, Kiev, and Moscow, ignoring or downplaying, but mostly ignoring, the questions I've just raised and you just raised with regard to the global south. And what's even more remarkable is that if you look at the newspaper of the Nation of Islam, I'm speaking of the final call, their analysis veers sharply from that uh, one-sided U.S. left analysis 
which does not bode well, it seems to me, for the ability of the U.S. left to recruit and influence the community that's most hostile to the right, uh, speaking of the black community, because one of the things I've noticed is that initially, after February 24th, 2022, when this conflict was initiated, I detected a kind of lukewarm attitude towards the, this conflict amongst uh, many in the black community by way of my forays onto black radio. But after the story started emerging about mistreatment of African students, the Ukraine-Polish border, about Mr. Biden leapfrogging 100,000 Ukrainians into the United States over the waiting line of Haitians, for example, maltreated and mistreated on the Texas-Mexico border, you began to see a sharp change. And then when the story emerged about how the U.S. Peace Corps has warned black volunteers to the Peace Corps that they may be called the N-word uh, in Ukraine, well, then you saw an even sharper shift away from this U.S. Uh, war and U.S.-imposed sanctions on uh, Moscow. And then the U.S. press has reported that the media images that are fed into Eastern Europe, uh, that is to say media images from the United States, TV and movies, has helped to shape and propel these anti-black attitudes. And what's remarkable there is that it's going to be difficult for that to be curved, even though strategically it would be in the interest of U.S. imperialism to curb that tendency to make sure that the significant black community is on board with regard to this imperialist adventure. But as the conflict that we'll be talking about shortly around Judge Brown Jackson suggests, these anti-black attitudes are deeply entrenched in U.S. culture. They're an essential component of political discourse. And so if the United States were to strive to curb these attitudes, they'd be going up against a formidable force right here at home. And so, therefore, this does not bode well, it seems to me, for future U.S. imperialist adventures. And that may be a cloud of optimism, ironically enough, in this otherwise rather dour, sour situation. Um, analysis and thoughts by all three of you there. Thank you so much, Dr. Horn. We're going to take a, a late session break now. Uh, and when we return, we're going to go on to the whole show that happened in the U.S. Senate <laughs> with the hearing of uh, Kitanji uh, Jackson Brown. Stay with us. Our panelists will be with us. Don't go anywhere. That's all we're saying. Give peace a chance. The late, great John Lennon. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And check out our website at SoTrueRadio.org. And we are heard nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Boise, Idaho, and internationally. We 
we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in South Africa. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. It is our weekly roundtable and our absolutely brilliant panelists, uh, Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn with us. And as we go into the discussion of the uh, hearing in the Senate of the candidate, President Biden's candidate for the Supreme Court, the first black woman um, to hopefully join uh, the court, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Let's go to a clip now, part of a clip. She is responding to a question put to her about um, what she would say to youth. And it actually brought her to tears, almost brought me to tears. Let's go to that clip now. I think it is important that we all invest in our future. And the young people are the future. And so I want them to know that they can do and be anything. And I'll just say that I will tell them what uh, an anonymous person said to me once. I was walking through Harvard Yard my freshman year. As I mentioned, I went to uh, public school. And I didn't know anything about Harvard until um, my debate coach took me there to enter a speech competition. And I thought, this is a great university. It was basically one of the only ones I'd seen. And I said, maybe I'll apply when I'm a senior. But I get there, and whoa, <laughs> so different. I'm from Miami, Florida. Boston is very cold. Um, it, was, um, it was rough. It was different from anything I'd known. There were lots of students there who were um, prep school kids like my husband, <laughs> um, who knew all about <laughs> knew all about Harvard, and, and that was not not me. And I think the first semester, I was really homesick. I was really questioning, um, do I belong here? Can I can I make it in this? environment and I was walking through the yard in the evening and a black woman I did not know was passing me on the sidewalk and she looked at me and I guess she knew how I was feeling and she leaned over as we crossed and said persevere I would tell them to persevere that's just incredible. That was actually my daughter's experience um, as a public school kid, uh, Jackie Goldberg, coming out of inner city L.A. and uh, going into uh, uh, Harvard. And since I mentioned you, Jackie, actually, maybe we'll just start with you uh, to get your reaction to uh, that sh show that went on in the in the Senate and and also what it revealed about where we are now um, in the United States. Uh, Jackie, we'll start with you. And uh, actually, I if don't everybody, think it yeah. reflects. Actually, I don't yeah. think it reflects where we are now. I think it reflects where the Republican Party is right now. Uh, and the reason I say that is is because I believe that uh, on the whole. Uh, the Brown nomination, Jackson nomination, is one which uh, has really the support of most of the American people. I think that the disgusting display 
that we all saw in the in the hearings was something that uh, actually support, helped support her, if you know what I mean. And the reason I say that is because, you know, when people uh, attack someone, it's just, it just you, your heart goes out to them. I think that probably the question that I was the most appalled by was when I think it was Graham says, well, how would you have felt to be accused of, uh, of assaulting a high school person like uh, the last uh, Supreme Court uh, justice nominee was uh, accused of? Yeah, I, I remember uh, myself when I was teaching in Compton for all those years and being the parent of a half-black kid, that one of the things that you talk to them about is how to deal with police. But I think the other thing you talk with them about is how not to express the anger that is righteously yours when people are being uh, racist, uh, sexist, and dogs. Uh, I think the New York Times guest editorial about how low will the Republicans go really feels uh, reflects my view. Because not only does uh, the fact that they're not going to vote for her matter, but even when Collins decides to vote for uh, uh, Jackson Brown, uh, Brown Jackson, uh, what we have are people who are saying that it's okay uh, to be racist dogs and to use racist dog whistles uh, against a person who is imminently, 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 uh, you know, uh, qualified. Uh, one of the things in that opinion in the uh, New York Times is is that when she was asked of the definition of the woman, the writer says the definition that came to my mind was a mature female who can, pain, can maintain her composure while being badgered on national television by posturing politicians. But that isn't what she said. And, you know, that's, that's a part of my anger. My anger is, is that she is not allowed she is not allowed to respond the way Kavanaugh responded. She is not allowed. She is not allowed to say, are you guys serious? Are you really serious? What the hell is wrong with you? You've, you supported me last time, and now you're not going to support me? Because, and, and, and you know what Grant says? Well, it's a different job. You know, these people are so revolting. They are so revolting that I believe they move America in a better direction by, by being so revolting. At least that's my hope and dream, because I think she will be on the court. I think she will be a very important voice on the court. We have never had anyone on the court who ever defended people in criminal cases as a uh, uh, public defender. We've never had anyone on the court who has been a white a, a black woman who has grown up in public schools and who has experienced the forms of racism and sexism that black women all over America suffer with every day. And she will be a voice that will raise those issues over and over and over again, even when they don't have the votes to change the outcomes. But there will be broad dissents that we will all read that will remind us that this is all about racism and sexism, and it has nothing to do with her qualifications. Right. Thank you for that, Jackie Goldberg. Laura Carlson, um, and then we'll hear from uh, Dr. Horn. And we, we, Laura and Dr. Horn, we likely have about six minutes or so left. Laura. Thanks. Yeah, I agree that it was hopefully not a reflection of the nation, but it was a completely unusual hearing, and not just because it was so partisan, which we've come to expect, but because it was so blatantly racist, sexist, and disrespectful. 
She was treated like a criminal. She was thrown ridiculous questions like, what is a woman? Like uh, implying that she sympathizes with child pornographers, insinuations even about the legality of interracial marriage. You know, so the whole, the whole grilling that happened um, on public television went way beyond just an accusation of being soft in crime and actually implied her complicity with criminal activity, another racist stereotype. Cotton says, you chose to rewrite the law because you were sympathetic to a drug fentanyl kingpin. You know, and she has to say, uh, respectfully, Senator, I disagree. Again, it does kind of make you a little upset that she couldn't be stronger in her responses because she was in this position. But they pulled out all the racist stereotypes, illegal drug use, criminal activity being high on the list. And in doing so, they were obviously grasping at straws. In many cases, they were even fabricating stories. The fact-checkers had a heyday. And you compare what they were trying to accuse her of with no documentation whatsoever. On the last day, if you look at those testimonies of the outside witnesses, the people who represented the American Bar Association and judges' organizations, I mean, the words they used were impeccable, brilliant. We don't understand how one person could do so much, you know. But you can, so you compare what they were trying to pin on her uh, to the multiple and sustained accusations of sexual abuse in the Kavanaugh and Thomas cases, and the double standard is, is in your face. Leahy, Senator Leahy said, you know, I've, I, you had a Republican member who went way over time allotted, ignored the rules of the committee, badgered the nominee, didn't even let her answer questions. I've never seen anything like this in 48 years. You had Graham, Cornyn, and Cruz interrupting yeah. all the no. time, which is a well-known tool of male domination. Uh, you know, so we really – now done. there's a vote on April 4th. Uh, the, they've said that Collins is crossing over, maybe to compensate for her disgusting behavior in the Kavanaugh confirmation. Uh, and so we'll see what happens. I think she will become a judge, and I think she will become an excellent judge. And, you know, Dr. Horn, I mean, it was obvious that those Republican senators accusing her of anything from being friendly to child pornographers to God knows what, they're playing to their base and they have the midterms in mind. They have the next uh, presidency uh, in mind. And you have CBS, for example, hiring um, a Republican saying that they're preparing for a sweep of uh, Republicans in the upcoming election. So I'm not so convinced that what we saw, that display we saw, the fact that they were playing with to their base didn't reflect um, a divide that's happening in this country. But just to get your thoughts, Dr. Horn. Well, I think that that's a fair point. We all know that the Democrats have lost the Euro-American vote consistently over the past 60 years or so, that Donald J. Trump got about 74, 75 million votes, despite all of his misdeeds in November of 2020, that he plans to run again in 2024, and certain polls suggest that he could prevail. But I think that what we need to do is also question the strategy that has been pursued historically uh, since the 1950s, when the NAACP uh, turned on the organized left, turned on Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois, 
and made an alliance with the liberal wing of the U.S. ruling class by dint of Justice Chief Justice Earl Warren of the U.S. Supreme Court, who issued uh, these uh, left-leaning opinions on desegregation and all the rest. But apparently they weren't aware of the history, speaking of the NAACP, of the U.S. Supreme Court, and did not recognize that the Warren Court was an anomaly. And therefore, it seems to me that there is good news coming out of this past week. I'm speaking of the fact that went under the radar that Nicole Hannah-Jones, the architect of the 1619 Project of the New York Times, which cast into doubt the so-called progressive nature of the formation of the United States of America, and therefore has been attacked repeatedly uh, from sectors ranging from the left to the right to the center. And in fact, there's been legislation assailing the 1619 Project and preventing it from being used in schools. And yet the General Assembly of the United Nations invited her to speak, which was a thumb in the eye to a broad sector of U.S. public opinion in the United States of America. And at the same time, it tended to revive the point that I was making a moment ago, which is that historically progress for the progressive community generally and the black community specifically has rested upon international alliances. And you saw that in a de facto sense at the General Assembly of the United Nations, and that, it seems to me, may be some of the most important news on the domestic scene this past week. Ironically enough, domestic news made in an international forum at United Nations headquarters, New York City. All right, Val, on that note, uh, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, and thank each and every one of our panelists. Another fascinating uh, roundtable. We're going out with the song Imagine um, by, uh, again, John Lennon. I'd like to thank Wendell, our board op today, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. I also uh, want to let you know that on Monday, April 4th, the anniversary of the assassination of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, the Poor People's Campaign in California are organizing readings, 54 public readings across California of Dr. King's Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break the Silent Speech. We are making that available to you. We will be live streaming one of those readings at 11 o'clock uh, Pacific time. Those of you in other regions, you can do the math, 11 o'clock. Pacific time. If you go to the Sojourner Truth Facebook page, you will be able to uh, hear that reading. Why 54? 54 for each year since Dr. King's assassination. And you can get more information by going to the California Poor People's Campaign Facebook page as well. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! Sojourner Truth. We'll be back on the air on Tuesday. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend. And you all, please remember to stay safe.